today we're coming back to our study in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and um, we have covered, already talking about elders, I had three sermons on that, and now we're moving toward an area uh, talking about deacons, and I have been encouraging us to, to really think about this is not just for the leadership. If we are to be models and, and examples to be followed, these are expectations for all believers that they'll have these, particularly with the, the character qualities. So I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you also to, to understand our responsibility to be praying and to be caring for and be on the lookout for the qualifications of the elders and deacons. We uh, ought to be above reproach, but we're not supposed to be away from being reproached. So if you see something wrong, we're not um, infallible. Uh, we do want you to come to us and to point that out. And if we need repentance, we, we need repentance. And so um, it is our responsibility as, in believers, as believers in Christ to also hold the leadership accountable. So with that said, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And um, I think I believe that this is an area of great confusion amongst evangelical Bible-believing Christians. It, it really is. Um, I... As I was preparing this last couple of weeks to, to preach this sermon, I, I read, I don't know, maybe six commentaries and a whole book on, on this. And let me tell you, the opinions are very, very different from each other. And um, it, you will find a great number of views. And there are so many opinions that it's really hard to pick which interpretation to follow, especially when some, um, some strange views come from theologians that we have great respect for, right? So it's just difficult to discern, but I trust this person, so, but I don't quite <laughs> agree with, with their view. It doesn't reflect the text well. So there is confusion even amongst the same denomination. If you go to a Presbyterian church and, and to another Presbyterian church and you compare their views on deacons, they're different, or a Baptist, or you know, a, a fellowship like we are here, they, they would have different views on, when it comes to deacons. So you might find one church, for example, deacons are the governing board of the church, while across town in another church, deacons are the building maintenance crew of, of the church. So my goal with the sermon today is to provide a clear exposition of God's design for deacons as described in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through, 12, through 13. And what we'll do today, we'll cover the first half of the text, then the other half will be in two Sundays. So following Michael's installation, then we'll come back to the other half of the text and we'll talk about uh, the, the qualifications for the deacons' wives and was that talking about deaconesses? So we'll try to, to answer those questions and, you know, try to, to bring it all together. We're, then we, as the body of Christ, all fit in together into this, right? We, we read in uh, different parts of the New Testament that we are the body of Christ, and each member has its responsibility. So we relate to the deacons, the deacons relate to the elders, and the elders and the deacons relate to the church, and the church relate to us. And, and hopefully, with the second sermon, I'm going to try to bring all of these pieces together. Um, so hang tight. <laughs> um, so we'll cover all, all of these things, and I hope this sermon will not only be instructing to you, but also helpful to you in understanding your relationship to GCF spiritual leadership. I have also included there at the end um, some implications for you as a church. So if you have the outline there, and I plan to resume those implications even uh, in two weeks here. 
So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting on verse 8. And though I'm going to only cover to verse 10 today, <clears throat> we'll read all the way through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons as they are beyond reproach. Women must be likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who served well as deacons obtained for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are so thankful that you have established the leaders in the church, Lord, a sinful man, failing man, that you have enabled, that you have sanctified, that you have saved, and you continue to mold them to Christ-likeness. And in all humility, Lord, I pray for our leadership here that we would grow in this Christ-likeness that uh, we are supposed to model to your people. Pray that you would bring clarity to this text, that you would help us not to... Um, just to discard because it's talking about leadership, but we as a church, seeing our responsibility as we relate to them, as well as even some of these characteristics that are expected of us as believers. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus and to engage in, with the text and to apply it to our lives. By your grace, in Jesus Christ we pray, amen. All right, so... Um, we'll try to, to work our way through the text here, trying to answer three questions. And the first question is, what does it mean to be a deacon? Um, so we, we read there in verse 8, deacons likewise, in the same way of the elders, like officers in the church, they have certain characteristics. And so I want to take some time to just explain what that word deacon means and how it's translated um, and what lexical meaning. If you're attending first class, uh, first, uh, first um, hour, the, our Sunday school class here, we've been talking about words and how they have a variety of meanings, but they have specific meaning in a given context. So what is this word deacon means here in the context? And I try to, you know, take some confusion that is out there and to bring some examples for us to, to discern what really is. So first, let's see what a deacon is not. What a deacon is not. And the first one of these is that a deacon office is not the same of an elder's office. It's, it kind of sounds, sounds intuitive, but there is a lot of confusion on this. Um, some attempt to remove any significant distinction between elders and deacons. For example, in his commentary to the pastoral epistles, Philip Towner argues for the deacons' full participation in the ministry of teaching and preaching. He contends that we should probably understand the deacon's task as being that of assisting the overseer or supervisor in administration, leadership, and teaching within the church. My question to that is, but if deacons execute all the same tasks of the overseers, they are, at least in practice, feeling the elders and overseers' role. Uh, um, why would Scripture use two different terminologies to describe this, the exact same thing? I appreciate in most of what I, my research that I did it was based on um, Alexander Strzok's book on deacons, the Actually, his second edition, because he changed his view from the first one. But a lot of what I'm using here uh, was based on, on his studies. 
And he states it well. He says, the presence of two similar offices that each provide teaching and governance is a surefire formula for confusion and power struggles. Even if the deacons are, in theory, subject to the elders, like some of these views argue. Paul was a wise master builder who understood the human nature and would have, not, would have known that such arrangement would be an organizational disaster, a source of conflict and disorder. It is highly unlikely that Paul would have established two officers doing pretty much the same things, end of quote. And I agree with him. The Apostle Paul was a wise man. He understood that unity in serving the church didn't mean indistinction in what one does. The Lord Jesus, as the head of the church, is a God of order, not a God of confusion. So I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and remember that the church in Corinth is experiencing divisions and all sorts of quarrels amongst them because they have all these different teachers that had different responsibilities and different roles at different times in the church. And, and Paul is arguing, you know, we're just instruments. Don't you get this? And you are divided over this thing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Uh, we are just instruments. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants and the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, the, he who plants and he who waters are one. So there is unity with people that have different responsibilities within the church. But he says, but each one will receive his own reward according to what? His own labor. So unity doesn't mean sameness. We might have, just as in marriage, we have different roles given by God with different responsibilities. So within the church, we have different roles with different responsibilities. That shouldn't cause div divisiveness, but unity. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field and God's building. So, uh, deacons are not the same as elders. <laughs> the second thing that we, we get here is that deacon, the deacon office is not limited to serving tables. Actually, a lot have this view because, uh, and I think primarily has to do with their study of Acts chapter 6. So let's turn there. Acts chapter 6. This passage has been used by many as what they would call proto-deacons, um, or the, the, uh, the primitive deacons, so to speak. And really, um, although there are some elements that might find similarities, the passage never called these seven men being described here as deacons. So some firmly believe that the office of deacons is limited to those serving the tables, including Alexander Strzok on his first book. He, he believed to that view until he later studied more in depth and he realized, like, no, this is not. Deacons don't do just serve tables. Although there's some common elements of service in Acts 6 where we read here um, that there was a time where the, the, the apostles were with a lot in their plate, and they were serving tables. And um, verse 3, he said, they say, Therefore, brethren, select among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, the task of serving tables. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And they chose these, these men, uh, these seven men, whom they don't call deacons, 
uh, later on in Acts 21, actually Luke's, uh, Luke, the author of, of Acts, assigns no title nor designation such as table servants to the seven. The closest that he comes to giving them a name is the seven. So chapter 21, verse 8, he refers to the same man and he calls them the seven. So besides nothing in the First Timothy 3, 8 to 13 passage indicates table service or food distribution, which is prominent in Acts chapter 6. As we will see, Paul uses the word diakonos in the Greek, where we take the word deacon from, in 1 Timothy, to identify aids or assistance to the elders, not as a designation for table servants. The seven of Acts 6 were specifically chosen by the congregation and appointed by the twelve for one task only, and that was serving tables. Now, these men, like Stephen, or they had other gifts. They were serving the church in different capacities. Some of them were evangelists. They were mighty in the spirit. Some of them did miracles. Um, but yet, they were appointed specifically to serve tables in that capacity. That is, the seven were to provide charitable relief for the church, many impoverished members. But in Timothy 3, Paul assigns no specific tasks for the the diaconai or the assistant to the elders. They don't describe what those tasks are. Unlike the table-serving officials of Acts 6, Paul's diaconoi are not limited to charitable ministries, even if care for the poor and the sick become a major part of their responsibilities, as it is likely by designating the officials of 1 Timothy 3 as assistants and not table servers, Paul allows them to do other demanding tasks that would assist the elders in the care of God's church as in Timothy 3, 5. The help of qualified, approved assistants who have the authority to carry out tasks delegated by the pastor elders relieves the elders of certain demanding tasks and helps them to keep their focus on their primary ministry of leading and feeding God's flock. Then thirdly, the deacons do not operate independently of the elders. So the, although the word deacon or the similar words to deacons is found in abundance in the New Testament, as an office is only found in two passages. The one that we just read here, 1 Timothy 3, and the other one is in Philippians 1.1. How about we turn there? It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. All right? So these are the two occurrences of the word deacons there. Deacons are paired with the overseers. So in this two texts that we see, they're, they're, they're always bring together, brought together. When referenced together, deacons always follow the overseers in the order of mention, suggesting that the deacons work under the supervision of the church overseers. The, the word overseer in itself already implies that they're over, they have oversight over others. So more important, the term overseers and deacons indicate that the deacons are subject to the overseers. The Greek term overseers denotes a superintendent, manager, or guardian. The Greek term for deacon can mean servant or a commissioned messenger or an agent of a superior. So I want you to bear with me for a while. In a way, the overseers do not need the deacons, and be careful with what I'm saying here, the whole thing, do not need the deacons in order to function as overseers of the local church. In this sense, elders can stand alone, however, must stand in relationship to some person or somebody of people for direction. As a, the New Testament scholar John Collins explained, from the nature of the terms, overseers could operate without deacons, but deacons could not operate without 
some such mandating functionary as an over, uh, overseers. The overseers are not subordinate to servants or assistants, but the deacons are subordinate to overseers. All right, and I will explain more on what when we get to the word uh, deacons more specifically here. Fourth, the deacons are not required to teach while they could teach. doesn't mean that they're required to teach, but they could teach. So some scholars claim that the qualification in verse 9 that we just read there, it says, uh, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, they read that to mean that the deacons should teach because they, they have this mystery of the faith. Uh, but this is very unlikely. Paul's instructions to Timothy does not include directions about teaching the mystery of the faith. Paul is simply stating that a deacon upholds the faith with a good conscience. A clear conscience has to do with the candidate's lifestyle. That is to say that he cannot be a hypocrite. To say that he believes one thing and live in a total different way. A clear um, his life, doctrine, belief, and practice must match, must match and be lived with a clear conscience. So the critical qualification for that an overseer is in an elder is that he'll be able to teach. So verse 2 there says an overseer must be all these things, and at the end there says able to teach. And then in Titus 1.9, where Paul also describes the function of the, de the, el the elders, he says that they must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict. And that is not required of deacons. Some might say that was just an accidental omission, that Paul didn't say these things to the deacon's role. But his omission of this requirement might, must be taken seriously if we are to understand the, what qualifies a deacon. Equating deacons to teachers and preachers not only disagrees with Paul's listings of their qualification, but it also causes confusion of roles and expectations within the church leadership. Now, let me explain this. The fact that the deacons do not have to be able to teach does not mean that they cannot teach. It simply means that teaching is not related to their office, therefore not expected from them as it is of an elder. A person who holds the office of deacon can certainly participate in other church ministries there outside his specific responsibilities as a deacon. A deacon is first and foremost a believer, and as such, he will have his spiritual gifts that he will employ in service to the Lord, that he might include teaching and admonishing. Just as in Acts 6, we had Stephen, who was appointed to do what? Serve tables. But Stephen was also a gifted teacher, and he, te and he taught. Now, that wasn't the qualifying fact for Stephen to be serving tables, was it? It wasn't. So in our church, most, if not all of our deacons have had or currently have used their gift to teach for the benefit of our congregation. We as elders don't want to discourage that, but to equip and direct those who have a gift and desire to serve in that capacity. So I hope that makes sense to you. And then lastly, the deacons are not the only ones serving in the church. Deacons work directly at helping the elders, relieving them of certain administrative and pastoral tasks. They are, as their title states, assistants. But because of their special position and work, they are required to meet specific and elder-like qualifications. These qualifications are not required of all who serve in the church. I mean, someone comes to me and says, you know, I want to teach Sunday school. I want to teach the children. I'm not going to, oh, okay, let's see here. What are your qualifications? I'm not going to open my Bible, and obviously I want to see where that person's testimony is, where they're standing before the Lord, because I don't want them teaching wrong things to children. 
but they don't have those qualifications. There is a certain difference between assistant to the elders and other members who serve the church body. Not everyone who serves or leads a church ministry holds the title of a deacon. In fact, every Sunday, you will see dozens of people here at GCF who are tremendously skilled in different capacities, employing their gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ. Some might be Sunday school teachers or musicians or helpers in the kitchen or in the emergency response team or IT technicians or counselors. The work of ministry is done not just by the elders and deacons. In fact, in Ephesians 4.12, describes to us that the main mission of a pastor teacher, how about we turn there, Ephesians 4.12. What is the main task of a pastor teacher? The main mission of a pastor teacher is to equip who? The saints for the work of service or the work of ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. So who builds up the body of Christ? And who does the work of service? The saints. Everyone does it. It's not just the elders. It's not just the deacons. And for that very reason, we want to encourage everyone to serve. Now, it's helpful to make a distinction between all who serve in the church and those who serve in an official capacity, qualified deacons, so that there are clear lines of responsibilities and knowledge of who are the point persons. Otherwise, there will be confusion and unproductive organization, which inevitably creates conflicts among members. Also, as the ones who will account for the congregation, elders determine precisely which tasks the deacons perform and which ones um, others in the congregation will perform. Now that we've seen what a deacon is not, let's see what a deacon is. First, we have here that the deacon's office consists in assisting the elders in their ministry. So the key to understanding for Timothy 3 8 through 13, is to accurately understand that the officials with whom they are associated with. So, verse 2 from chapter, chapter 3 says, An overseer then must be above reproach. And then what is the transition to the next one on verse 8? Deacons likewise, the same way that the elders have these qualifications, so the deacons have qualifications. They are related. And we'll see a lot of similarity between these qualifications. It's almost like I'm doing a repeat of these things. Paul requires that the overseer be able to teach God's word and to care for God's church as a steward of God's household. In chapter 3, verse 2, verse 5, and Titus 1, 7, Paul not only described the overseers as the one who is able to teach, but also the one who is held accountable for managing the church. According to the information we have in the New Testament, overseers and elders were appointed first before deacons. Churches must have qualified overseers or elders, but they do not require deacons, as for example in the church in Crete, which had Titus as one of their elders. You see, you read Titus 1, where it gives the qualification for, for overseers, it doesn't speak of deacons. Why is that? Historically, the scholars have reconstructed the fact that the church in Crete was very small. Unlike the church in Ephesus, from whom where Paul is, is writing to Timothy. That was a different from a larger congregation in Ephesus under the care of Timothy. Paul most likely chose the particular Greek word, diakonos, because... As uh, a scholar explains, the term better captures the intermediary function Paul had in mind. He was thinking of a role that involved being simultaneously in and under authority, under the authority of the elders, but having authority over the congregation to carry out tasks as needed. Diakonos 
provided a clear way to say that this, while we still having room for flex flexibility as to the nature of specific texts that deacons might undertake. End of quote. So the view that deacons means assistant is built on a more objective and linguistic and contextual evidence than the undefined leading servant or the table uh, serving views. Now, that's not to say that the relationship of the overseers and the assistants should be viewed as one as a master and a servant. The overseers are not the deacon's masters. The deacons are not the domestic servants of the elders, serving their every personal whim or want or need. The deacons are representatives. They're the representatives of the overseers and elders and act on their behalf in the service to God's church. It follows then that they, like the elders, need to be properly qualified, examined, and approved by the church. If they ought to represent the qualified man, they should be qualified themselves. And as assistants to the elders and church office holders, the deacons will exercise a measure of formal authority in the congregation, but always under the authority of the elders. Paul himself required assistance to help him in the gospel mission. Luke records that Timothy and Erastus, and we're not going to open there, but Acts 19.22, I listed it there for you. Um, he says, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, the word there for helpers is that has the same root diaconi, right? The diacon, the deacons, those who assisted him. So Timothy and Erastus were sent by Paul to represent him in Macedonia in his behalf. So from his own experience of having assistance and caring for churches, Paul would know that the elders need for formal assistance. The New Testament emphasizes the strenuous labor and toil required of church leaders. Just as the 12 apostles devoted themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, in, as we read in Acts 6, there were in the church at Ephesus elders who devoted themselves to the labor in preaching and teaching, according to chapter 5, 17. These hardworking elders would profit greatly from having official assistant to help bear the heavy burdens of the pastoral work in the congregation. So secondly, the, the deacon's tasks are appointed by the elders to meet the church's needs. The specific tasks of deacons are to be determined by the elders in accordance with the church's particular needs, size, and giftedness of its members. So, uh, and that's where Paul leaves this term very broad here. He's, he doesn't say deacons ought to do music, deacons ought to do this or do that. Well, depending on the size of the church, will we have people equipped in all these areas? Will we have people gifted in all these areas, counseling, teaching? And so if he were to define these things, he would limit the areas in which the deacons would be able to serve. So we, we as elders are in constant need of help with different areas of ministry, such as hospital visits, checking on people that are absent from the church, assisting families in distress, visiting and protecting the elderly and the shut-ins, helping with finances, overseeing the church property, and carrying out certain administrative tasks. In a large church, different deacons may be assigned different areas of responsibility based on their spiritual giftedness. Are they gifted in this? And their interests, do they want to do this? Paul uses the plural for deacons. That's another thing I want to note here. Indicated that he envisioned more than one deacon to assist the elders. As to the number of deacons needed, it's not said. The elders would have to determine that according to the needs of the church. And it's elders and the availability of qualified individuals. Just because we have a need doesn't mean that we're going to put someone in the office if they're not qualified. 
In some churches, for example, there may be only one person who qualifies for the office. But it is better to have one qualified deacon than to have three who do not meet the biblical standards. Now, I appreciate, again, how Strzok describes this relationship. He says, successful deacons' ministry is dependent largely on the effective supervision by the elders. As many questions about deacons are not answered in the scriptures, the elders have a great deal of flexibility on how to direct and utilize them. The elders need to use their God-given creative thinking powers and organizational skills to effectively utilize the ministry of the deacons. If not, the deacons will flounder and become frustrated with the elders. So pray for us, because we need wisdom as to, okay, what needs to be done? Who has the giftedness? Who has the abilities and the skills that we can appoint to do these tasks? Now that we've seen what a deacon is not and what he is, the question comes is, what makes someone a deacon? And that leads us to verse 8. The second half here of verse 8 says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain. So our first, um, now that we establish these things, um, the point of the passage is pretty straightforward. Just as the overseers must be of a certain character in order to qualify for the office of overseer, deacons also must be of a certain character to qualify for their position and work. The qualifications are no less necessary for a deacon than for an elder. That's why Paul lists here several um, qualifications that a deacon must meet. The first one is, I titled here, sound conduct. A sound conduct. And that refers to what he described here as they must be men of dignity. From previous sermons, we have established that both from my studies in 1 Timothy as well as in 1 Samuel, that a leader's moral character and public reputation are essential to the task of leading God's people. That's why all leaders must be above reproach in character and public reputation. And it is obvious those uh, who officially assist the elders ought to be of similar character and reputation as Paul writes. They must be dignified. Today, the word dignified might convey the idea of a person who is reserved or proper, proper in appearance or demeanor. But that is not the best meaning of the Greek term seminas in, that Paul uses here. It is less to do with their appearance. I mean, I, I just think about it. If, if elders and deacons <laughs> were to be chosen based on their appearance, most of, most of us would be out of here. More to do how the attitudes, it has more to do with the, how the attitudes and conduct win the admiration of others. It refers to a respectable, a well-thought-out person. The NIV translates the term as someone worthy of respect. A good example of a man that was worthy of respect is Timothy. For, his, for instance, in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, Luke describes Timothy as he was well-spoken of by the brothers. That's a dignified man. Timothy's character had earned him a good reputation, which is most commendable for a young man as he was. This attribute qualified Timothy to travel with Paul and to assist him with his gospel mission. As highly visible officials in the church, deacons are expected to be role models of the Christian character and living. Candidates for this office must demonstrate a respectable lifestyle so that upon public examination by the church and its leaders, they are found to be blameless, as we'll read in verse 10. They must be, writes one commentator, of good character, and that certified by the public testimony. 
So immediately following this positive quality of public respectability, Paul adds three negative traits that should not characterize a deacon. Each calls for self-control in speech, in drink, and in ambition. These sinful behaviors are particularly troublesome because of their potential to create disrespect among Christians and non-Christians. Think of the politicians and, and religious figures who, for example, have been caught in lies or are known for their habits of excessive drinking or have embezzled public and charitable funds. These corrupt leaders have brought reproach upon their offices and lost their reputations and the public's respect. When church leaders lie, embezzle, or are addicted to alcohol and other substances, they bring public reproach upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. They have forgotten all God's, God's all-important call to his people to be holy as he is holy. And I think this is for all of us, really. First Peter 1, 14 to 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy Spirit, the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If God expects this from all believers, he expects this from his leaders as well. So, um, our next point here is that they should be sound in speech. Verse 8 says that they're not to be double-tongued. The first of several prohibitions that Paul stipulates is that a deacon not to be double-tongued. They are to be people who are consistent in what they say. The, the Greek word there is really interesting. Uh, the dilogos means speaking with two words or two voices. It, it expresses the idea of saying one thing to one person and saying a different thing to another. Now, I believe that John Bunyan in the Pilgrim's Progress illustrate this well with a description of the people who lived in the town of fair speech. He says that there was my lord turnabout, there was my lord time server, there was my lord fair speech after whose ancestors the town was named, there was Mr. Smooth Man, and there was Mr. Facing Both Ways, there was Mr. Anything, and there is a person, the parson of the parish, Mr. Two Tongues. So this qualification emphasizes integrity of speech and specifically prohibits any kind of insincere or duplicitous speech. It might be a temptation for some to evade issues by a little timely hypocrisy or smooth speaking. But duplicity of speech ruins trust and undermines a leader's credibility. Although this prohibition may seem like a minor issue, less than honest speech is damaging to relationships. It's like a dead flies in a precious ointment. You might, you might think, well, this is not a major thing. This is not a big deal. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 says, dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weighter than wisdom and honor. Uh, Strzok, again, is helpful here where he says, possibly this first prohibition is necessary because deacons are often placed between the elders and the people they're helping on behalf of the elders. When people are under pressure, it may be tempting to reveal less than the full truth. Or to conceal the truth when he's speaking to certain people. Or to think that little white lies are acceptable. Or when there is a disagreement or a conflict, some people may try to please both parties by saying one thing to the elders and another thing to the people that they're talking to. Inevitably, those who play loose with the truth or call it a truth or exaggerate or paint the truth 
and try to please everyone will be guilty of being double-tongued. Such a person does not command respect. It is, sad, it is a sad testimony to the word of truth and the gospel of our salvation. A slippery-talking deacon is an appalling witness to the gospel and, God, and the God of all truth. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, as Proverbs 12.22 says. Behind a deceitful tongue, there is always a deceitful mind. End of quote. As church officials and examples of a Christ-like character, deacons must know, be known for integrity of speech. Our words have serious consequences. As Jesus warned, every careless word we speak will someday be judged. So Jesus holds us responsible for what we say as well as what we do with what we say. If a deacon's word cannot be trusted, he's not worthy of respect and is not fit to assist the elders in the care of God's church. But that leads us to the next one, which is a deacon must be sound in mind. And that he describes as not addicted to much wine. So just like for the elders, deacons are not to be addicted to much wine. The second prohibition is not an absolute ban on drinking, but a prohibition against excessive use of wine. And I want to add, in any other substance that is impairing to the judgment. And consequently, it will damage their reputation and service for God. Enslavement to alcohol reveals a lack of spirit-controlled living. A Christian with a drinking problem is controlled by the flesh and not by the Holy Spirit. And as such, is an appalling example of what a believer in Christ is to be like. Any addiction impairs one's judgment and connection to reality. Enslavement to alcohol might also lead to sins like hypocrisy or uncontrolled anger, lying, or spousal abuse. Of particular concern to deacon leaders, to church leaders, should be the, and I think it is interesting that Schrock brings this, the secret alcoholic. It would be rare to see a deacon who is full-on alcoholic and you find him lying drunk in the street. You won't see that. It's what it's called a closet alcoholic or a high-functioning alcoholic. It is more likely that he will be a secret alcoholic who leads a double life. He'll be a master of concealment. He may work hard all day and appear to be responsible, even successful, but he'll be inebriated at home during the evening hours. He will stubbornly deny his addiction and go to great lengths to hide it. He may aggressively attack anyone who exposes his problem, including his spouse and children. The secret alcoholic damages family relationships and it will bring reproach to the church and the office of a deacon. People will ask, how can that man have a drinking problem and he still be allowed to be a deacon? Why don't the elders deal with this? In God's holy family, a person enslaved to alcohol is not worthy of respect and is not qualified for the church office. So the last negative here is sound in ambition. And he describes that as not fond of sordid gain. It's very similar to what Paul described the elders. He says the Bible repeatedly warns us against the sin of greed and the love of money being the root of all kinds. Um, later in chapter 6 of Timothy says that. It also presents many examples of leaders who use the God-given positions and authority to acquire financial gain at others' expenses. In most cases, however, church officials do not steal actual cash. Instead, they misdirect church funds to their own so-called, oh, this is a ministry expense. And meals or travel, vacations, or sport activities, or car or home repairs. Unless agreed upon by the congregation and its leaders, all such misappropriation of a church fund is a shameful profit. It is a betrayal of trust. It is fleecing the flock and not serving the flock. People with this kind of shady financial dealings are often devoid of a pure conscience, and they are self-deceived and full of self-justification. 
That's why having multiple deacons and elders helps us to provide and build accountability in the administration of church finances. We don't have one person dealing with money here. A plurality of leadership helps this to keep this accountability. Believers are not usually going to give to the church if they do not trust the integrity of their leaders. In order to provide genuine accountability and transparency, there must always be more than one person collecting and distributing church funds. Then lastly, last qualification here, it's kind of two in one. It's, it's sound doctrine and practice. And that's described on verse 9, holding to the, the mystery of faith and with a clear conscience. Qualifications for service begin with conduct. But that is not, that's not the end. When uh, we read mystery and it's nothing mysterious about it, it is not referring to things the church is still trying to figure out. Rather, mystery is something that long hidden but is now revealed. And the reason why deacons have to be sound in their doctrine is their influence in the church. The mystery is really is speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation in Christ. They need to have a confession of faith. Christians, including deacons, should be able to explain their beliefs. But there's more. A deacon must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That is, he understands he must not only inform his life, he must also live with that clear conscience. A man's faith is in great shape when his conscience does not reproach how he lives. So, we've seen that the matter of conscience is very spoken of in 1 Timothy. He speaks of the goal of our instruction is a pure heart with a good conscience. He describes that Timothy, to fight the good fight, he needed to hold on to the faith and a clear conscience. So, both the confession and the practice need to go hand in hand. That leads us then... Now that we've seen who a deacon is and how they're qualified to be a deacon, how then they become a deacon. That is answered in verse 10. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons as they are beyond reproach. The reason for the testing required for deacons is, is not the preceding qualifications for elders. is that everyone was already aware of testing required for eldership. Testing for such leaders are alluded in chapter 5, verse 22, which says, do not be hasty in the laying of hands. So elders are also tested. And in verse 24, it says, the sins of some man are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. So he was speaking of elders who were unqualified and saying, you know, you need to judge. You need to evaluate before you lay hands on these leaders. So the testing here in 1 Timothy 3 does not refer to an official deacon's test or even probationary period, but a test as to their reputation, the positive and negative evidence in the candidate's life. So... A deacon does not need to take a doctrinal test like us elders had to take on, on teaching, on, you know, rebuking error. But they are tested in their character. The candidate's background, their reputation, their adherence to the mystery of the gospel will be checked in that examination. Anything less than this would not correct the Ephesians' problem. Whether this examination involved the formal probationary period is, is more difficult to decide, but um, by the observation of the character was really what helped them to be able to serve. After a prospective deacon has been approved for the office, some form of public recognition is in order. The first Christians were not averse to simple public ceremony for appointing or commissioning fellow members to special positions. You will remember that we read in Acts 6-6 that after the seven was appointed to that task, they 
had the, lay, the, the hands laid on them to, as a public recognition of God's approval of their character qualities to be able to serve. So the installation of a deacon before the congregation by the laying of hands or any other means that a church desires to use officially in public places the person into the office. It says to the appointed deacon, you now begin your responsibilities. You have the authority to do the work of a deacon. And you can now use the title deacon. You have important work to do. And then the installation of a deacon also says to the church, the congregation, here is a new deacon to assist your elders in the care of God's church. This person is biblically qualified and approved by the church and its leaders. And if I may add, I would say, and you pray for them and you support them. So I want to conclude our sermon today by presenting to you our deacon body. So these men do so much for our church, and much of what they do, it it might not be known to you. Here are some areas of service that they are engaged in. Sound system, nursery and child care, building maintenance and improvements, emergency response team, teaching and openers, child abuse prevention training, scheduling Sunday school teachers, Music ministry, website, building and clean, uh, build cleaning, family camp, baptismal set up and storage, fellowship meal set up, substitute teach for youth group or fellowship groups, or Sunday school. They do so much, and I would like to invite here these men. Uh, to challenge you as a church to recognize them in thankfulness for their service and commit to pray for them that the Lord will maintain them faithful. So come on up, Andrew Bergen, Bob Berg, Jake Evans, and Tim Horseman. So for those of you that are new to our church and you don't connect the face to the man, have here Andrew Bergen, Bob Berg, Tim Horseman, and Jake Evans. I also would like to recognize and express our gratitude to Ricky uh, Chaddock. Um, he is, has faithfully served at GCF in many areas, such as Sunday school and nursery and music ministry, updating the church website and calendar. And as some of you may know, Ricky's recently bought a home in Florida, um, I'd I like to be there, too, and visit you guys. <laughs> um, so recently uh, bought the home in Florida where he and his family will be spending half of the year. And whenever Ricky will be in Minnesota, he would like to continue to serve in our church. And we are excited to have him to continue to serve with us in the areas in which the Lord has gifted him. He is truly a gift to our church. Uh, but due to the physical nature of some of his deacon responsibilities, Ricky will be stepping down from being a deacon. So over the course of the several next few months, we will hope to redistribute some of his current deacon responsibilities amongst the elders and other deacons. And we also want to communicate that um, our present intentions of and things that we have been doing to be on the lookout for GCF men that might meet this qualification, so could potentially be trained and examined and installed as new deacons. So let's close in prayer, and as we celebrate communion here, they'll stay here to help us. Um, and let's thank our Lord for these men and for what they do. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful uh, beyond words for the gift that these, men's, these men are to our church. Lord, all that they do behind the scenes that uh, most of us don't know, and yet they have been doing faithfully. Lord, I pray that you would preserve them faithful. Uh, we're thankful for Ricky as well, who is not here, and for all that he continues to do even now at a distance. And Lord, we're just thankful for the blessing that they are to us. I pray, Lord, that we would uphold them 
to be an encouragement to them and we as elders to be um, clear in our communication and an encouragement to their service. But I pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds to, to come together as a church to celebrate your death and resurrection through communion. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.